Section 20 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner Written by himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. As we emerged from the shadowy lane into the fair moonshine, I started so that my whole frame underwent the most chilling vibrations of surprise. I again thought I had been taken at unawares and was conversing with another person. My friend was equipped in the Highland garb, and so completely translated into another being that, saved by his speech, all the senses of mankind could not have recognized him. I blessed myself, and asked whom it was his pleasure to personify tonight. He answered me carelessly, that it was a spark whom he meant should bear the blame of whatever might fall out tonight, and that was all that passed on the subject. We proceeded by some stone steps at the foot of the north lock, in hot argument all the way. I was afraid that our conversation might be overheard, for the night was calm and almost as light as day and we saw sundry people crossing us as we advanced. But the zeal of my friend was so high that he disregarded all danger, and continued to argue fiercely and loudly on my delinquency, as he was pleased to call it. I stood on one argument alone, which was that I did not think the scripture promises to the elect taken in their utmost latitude, warranted the assurance that they could do no wrong, and that, therefore, it behooved every man to look well to his steps. There was no religious scruple that irritated my enlightened friend and master so much as this. He could not endure it, and the sentiments of our great Covenanted reformers being on his side, there is not a doubt that I was wrong. He lost all patience on hearing what I advanced on this matter, and taking hold of me, he led me into a darksome booth in a confined entry, and after a friendly but cutting reproach, he bade me remain there in secret and watch the event. And if I fall, said he, you will not fail to avenge my death. I was so entirely overcome with vexation that I could make no answer, on which he left me abruptly, a prey to despair. And I saw or heard no more till he came down to the moonlight green, followed by my brother. They had quarreled before they came within my hearing, for the first words I heard were those of my brother, who was in a state of intoxication, and he was urging a reconciliation, as was his wont on such occasions. My friend spurned at the suggestion, and dared him to the combat. 
and after a good deal of boastful altercation, which the turmoil of my spirits prevented me from remembering, my brother was compelled to draw his sword and stand on the defensive. It was a desperate and terrible engagement. I, at first, thought that the royal stranger and great champion of the faith would overcome his opponent with ease, for I considered heaven as on his side, and nothing but the arm of sinful flesh against him. But I was deceived. The sinner stood firm as a rock, while the assailant flitted about like a shadow, or rather like a spirit. I smiled inwardly, conceiving that these lights of maneuvers were all a sham to show off his art and mastership in the exercise, and that, whenever they came too close fairly, that instant my brother would be overcome. Still I was deceived. My brother's arm seemed invincible, so that the closer they fought, the more palpably did it prevail. They fought round the green to the very edge of the water, and so round till they came close up to the covert where I stood. There being no more room to shift ground, my brother then forced him to come to close quarters, on which, the former still having the decided advantage, my friend quitted his sword and called out. I could resist no longer, so springing from my concealment, I rushed between them with my sword drawn, and parted them as if they had been two schoolboys. Then, turning to my brother, I addressed him as follows. Wretch! Miscreant! Knowest thou what thou art attempting? Wouldest thou lay thy hand on the Lord's anointed? or shed his precious blood. Turn thee to me, that I may chastise thee for all thy wickedness, and not for the many injuries thou hast done to me. To it we went, with full thirst of vengeance on every side. The duel was fierce, but the might of heaven prevailed, and not my might. The ungodly, and reprobate young man fell covered with wounds, and with curses and blasphemy in his mouth, while I escaped uninjured. Thereto his power extended not. I will not deny that my own immediate impressions of this affair in some degree differed from this statement. But this is precisely as my illustrious friend described it to be afterwards, and I can rely implicitly on his information, as he was at that time a looker-on, and my senses all in a state of agitation, and he could have no motive for saying what was not the positive truth. Never till my brother was down did we perceive that there had been witnesses to the whole business. Our ears were then astounded by rude challenges of unfair play, which were quite appalling to me. But my friend laughed at them and conducted me off in perfect safety, 
as to the unfairness of the transaction, I can say thus much, that my royal friend's sword was down ere ever mine was presented. But if it still be accounted unfair to take up a conqueror, and punish him in his own way, I answer, that if a man is sent on a positive mission by his master, and hath laid himself under vows to do his work, he ought not to be too nice in the means of accomplishing it. And further, I appeal to holy writ, wherein many instances are recorded of the pleasure the Lord takes in the final extinction of the wicked and profane. And this position I take to be unanswerable. I was greatly disturbed in my mind for many days, knowing that the transaction had been witnessed and sensible also of the perilous situation I occupied, owing to the late judgment of the court against me. But on the contrary, I never saw my enlightened friend in such high spirits. He assured me there was no danger, and again repeated that he warranted my life against the power of man. I thought proper, however, to remain in hiding for a week. But as he said, to my utter amazement, the blame fell on another, who was not only accused, but pronounced guilty by the general voice, and outlawed for non-appearance. How could I doubt, after this, that the hand of heaven was aiding and abetting me? The matter was beyond my comprehension, and as for my friend, he never explained anything that was past, but his activity and art were without parallel. He enjoyed our success mightily, and for his sake I enjoyed it somewhat, but it was on account of his comfort only, for I could not for my life perceive in what degree the church was better or purer than before these deeds were done. He continued to flatter me with great things, as to honors, fame, and emolument, and above all, with the blessing and protection of him, to whom my body and soul were dedicated. But after these high promises, I got no longer peace, for he began to urge the death of my father with such an unremitting earnestness that I found I had nothing for it but to comply. I did so, and cannot express his enthusiasm of approbation. So much did he hurry and press me in this that I was forced to devise some of the most openly violent measures, having no alternative. Heaven spared me the deed, taking, in that instance, the vengeance in its own hand for before my arm could effect a sanguine but meritorious act, the old man followed his son to the grave. My illustrious and zealous friend seemed to regret this somewhat, but he comforted himself with the reflection that still I had the merit of it, having not only consented to it, but in fact effected it, for by doing the one action I had brought about both. 
No sooner were the obsequies of the funeral over than my friend and I went to Doll Castle and took undisputed possession of the houses, lands, and effects that had been my father's. But his plate and vast treasures of ready money he had bestowed on a voluptuous and unworthy creature who had lived long with him as a mistress. Fain would I have sent her after her lover, and gave my friend some hints on the occasion. But he only shook his head, and said that we must lay all selfish and interested motives out of the question. For a long time, when I awakened in the morning, I could not believe my senses, that I was indeed the undisputed and sole proprietor of so much wealth and grandeur. And I felt so much gratified that I immediately set about doing all the good I was able, hoping to meet with all approbation and encouragement from my friend. I was mistaken. He checked the very first impulses toward such a procedure, questioned my motives, and uniformly made them out to be wrong. There was one morning that a servant said to me there was a lady in the back chamber who wanted to speak with me, but he could not tell me who it was, for all the old servants had left the mansion, every one on hearing of the death of the late Laird, and those who had come knew none of the people in the neighborhood. From several circumstances, I had suspicions of private confabulations with women, and refused to go to her, but bid the servant inquire what she wanted. She would not tell. She could only state the circumstances to me. So I, being sensible that a little dignity of manner became me in my elevated situation, returned for answer that, if it was business that could not be transacted by my steward, it must remain untransacted. The answer which the servant brought back was of a threatening nature. She stated she must see me, and if I refused her satisfaction there, she would compel it where I should not invite her. My friend and director appeared pleased with my dilemma, and rather advised that I should hear what the woman had to say, on which I consented, provided she would deliver her mission in his presence. She came with manifest signs of anger and indignation, and began with a bold and direct charge against me of a shameful assault on one of her daughters, of having used the basest of means in order to lead her aside from the paths of rectitude, and on the failure of these, of having resorted to the most unqualified measures. I denied the charge in all its bearings, assuring the dame that I had never so much as seen either of her daughters to my knowledge, far less wronged them, on which she got into great wrath and abused me to my face as an accomplished vagabond, hypocrite, and sensualist and she went so far as to tell me roundly that if I did not marry her daughter, she would bring me to the gallows, and that in a very short time.
Marry your daughter, honest woman, said I. On the faith of a Christian, I never saw your daughter, and you may rest assured in this, that I will neither marry you nor her. Do you consider how short a time I have been in this place? How much that time has been occupied? And how there was even a possibility that I could have accomplished such villainies? And how long does your Christian reverence suppose you have remained in this place since the late Laird's death, said she? That is too well known to need recapitulation, said I. Only a very few days, though I cannot at present specify the exact number. Perhaps from thirty to forty or so. But in all that time, Sirdes, I have never seen either you or any of your two daughters that you talk of. You must be quite sensible of that. My friend shook his head three times during this short sentence, while the woman held up her hands in amazement and disgust, exclaiming, There goes the self-righteous one! There goes the consecrated youth! Who cannot err? You, sir, know, and the world shall know, of the faith that is in the most just, devout, and religious miscreant. Can you deny that you have already been in this place four months and seven days? Or that, in that time, you have been forbid my house twenty times? Or that you have preserved in your endeavors to effect the beset and most ungenerous of purposes? Or that you have attained them, hypocrite and deceiver as you are? Yes, sir, I say, dare you deny that you have attained your vile, selfish, and degrading purposes towards a young, innocent, and unsuspecting creature, and thereby ruined a poor widow's only hope in this world? No, you cannot look in my face and deny aught of this. The woman is raving mad, said I. You, illustrious sir, know that, in the first instance, I have not yet been in this place one month. My friend shook his head again and answered me. You are wrong, my dear friend. You are wrong. It is indeed the space of time that the lady hath stated to a day since you came here, and I came with you. And I am sorry that I know for certain that you have been frequently haunting her house, and have often had private correspondence with one of the young ladies, too. Of the nature of it, I presume not to know. You are mocking me, said I. But as well may you try to reason me out of my existence as to convince me that I have been here even one month, or that any of those things you allege against me has the shadow of truth or evidence to support it. I will swear to you, by the great God that made me, and by... Hold, thou most abandoned profligate, cried she violently, and do not add perjury to your other detestable crimes. Do not, for mercy's sake, any more profane that name whose attributes you have wrested and disgraced. 
But tell me what reparation you propose offering to my injured child. I again declare before heaven, woman, that to the best of my knowledge and recollection, I never saw your daughter. I now think I have some faint recollection of having seen your face, but where or in what place puzzles me quite. And why, said she, because for months and days you have been in such a state of extreme iniquity that your time has gone over like a dream that has been forgotten? I believe that, from the day you came first to my house, you have been in a state of utter delirium, and that principally from the fumes of wine and ardent spirits. It is a manifest falsehood, said I. I have never, since I entered on the possession of Doll Castle, tasted wine or spirits, saving once a few evenings ago, and I confess to my shame that I was led too far. But I have craved forgiveness and obtained it. I take my noble and distinguished friend there for a witness to the truth of what I assert. A man who has done more and sacrificed more for the sake of genuine Christianity than any this world contains. Him you will believe. I hope you have attained forgiveness, said he seriously. Indeed, it would be next to blasphemy to doubt it. But of late, you have been very much addicted to intemperance. I doubt if from the first night you tasted the delights of drunkenness, that you have ever again been in your right mind until Monday last. Doubtless you have been for a good while most diligent in your addresses to this lady's daughter. This is unaccountable, said I. It is impossible that I can have been doing a thing and not doing it at the same time. But indeed, honest woman, there have several incidents occurred to me in the course of my life which persuade me I have a second self, or that there is some other being who appears in my likeness. Here my friend interrupted me with a sneer, and a hint that I was talking insanely. And then he added, turning to the lady, I know my friend Mr. Cowain will do what is just and right. Go and bring the young lady to him, that he may see her, and he will then recollect all his former amours with her. I humbly beg your pardon, sir, said I, but the mention of such a thing as amours with any woman existing to me is really so absurd. So far from my principles, so from the purity of nature and frame to which I was born and consecrated, that I hold it as an insult and regard it with contempt. I would have said more in reprobation of such an idea, had not my servant entered, and said that a gentleman wanted to see me on business. Being glad of an opportunity of getting quit of my lady visitor, I ordered the servant to show him in, and forthwith a little lean gentleman, with a long, aquiline nose and a bald head, 
daubed all over with powder and pomatum, entered. I thought I recollected having seen him too, but could not remember his name, though he spoke to me with the greatest familiarity. At least that sort of familiarity that an official person generally assumes. He bustled about and about, speaking to everyone, but declined listening for a single moment to any. The lady offered to withdraw, but he stopped her. No, no, Mrs. Keeler, you need not go, you need not go, you must not go, madam. The business I came about concerns you, yes, that it does. Bad business, yon walkers, eh? Could not help it. Did all I could. Mr. Ringham, done your business. Have it all cut and dry here, sir. No, this is not it. Having it among them, though. I am a little lost for your name, sir, addressing my friend. Seen you very often, though, exceedingly often, quite well acquainted with you. No, sir, you are not, said my friend sternly. The intruder never regarded him, never so much as lifted his eyes from his bundle of law papers, among which he was bustling with great hurry and importance, but went on. Impossible! Have seen a face very like it, then. What did you say your name was, sir? Very like it, indeed. Is it not the young laird who was murdered whom you resemble so much? Here. Mrs. Keeler uttered a scream, which so much startled me that it seems I grew pale, and on looking at my friend's face, there was something struck me so forcibly in the likeness between him and my late brother that I had barely nearly fainted. The woman exclaimed that it was my brother's spirit that stood beside me. Impossible! exclaimed the attorney. At least I hope not, else his signature is not worth the pin. There is some balance due on yon business, madam. Do you wish your account? Because I have it here, ready discharged, and it does not suit letting such things lie over. This business of Mr. Colwain's will be a severe one on you, madam, rather a severe one. What business of mine? If it be your will, sir, said I. For my part, I never engaged you in business of any sort less or more. He never regarded me, but went on. You may appeal, though. Yes, yes. There are such things as appeals for the refractory. Here it is, gentlemen. Here they are all together. Here is, in the first place, sir, your power of attorney. Regularly warranted, sealed, and signed with your own hand. I declare solemnly that I never signed that document, said I. Aye, aye, the system of denial is not a bad one in general, said my attorney. But at present, there is no occasion for it. You do not deny your own hand. I deny everything connected with the business, cried I. I disclaim it in toto, and declare that I know no more about it than the child unborn. This is exceedingly good, exclaimed he. I like your pertinacity vastly. 
I have three of your letters and three of your signatures. That part is all settled. And I hope so is the whole affair, for here is the original grant to your father, which he has never thought proper to put in requisition. Simple gentlemen, but here have I, Lawyer Lincoln, in one hundredth part of the time that any other notary, writer, attorney, or writer of the signet in Britain would have done it. Procured the signature of His Majesty's Commissioner, and thereby confirmed the charter to you and your house, sir, for ever and ever. Begging your pardon, madam, the lady, as well as myself, tried several times to interrupt the loquacity of Lincoln, but in vain. He only raised his hand with a quick flourish and went on. Here it is. James, by the grace of God, King of Britain, France, and Ireland, to his right trusty cousin, sendeth greeting. And whereas his right leal and trustworthy cousin, George Cowain of Dahl Castle and Belgrenon, hath suffered great losses and undergone much hardship on behalf of his majesty's rights and titles. He, therefore, for himself, and as prince and steward of Scotland, and by the consent of his right trusty cousins and counsellors, hereby grants to the said George Cowain, his heirs and assignees whatsoever, heritably and irrevocably, all inhale the lands and others underwritten. To wit, all inhale the five-mark land of Kiplerig, the five-pound land of Easter Knockward, with all the towers, forticles, manor places, houses, biggings, yards, orchards, tofts, crofts, mills, woods, fishings, mooses, mirrors, meadows, commodities, pasturages, coals, Call Hughes, tenets, tenetries, service of free tenets, annexes, connexes, dependencies, parts, pinnacles, and pertinents of the same whatsoever, to be peaceably brooked, joisted, set, used, and disposed of by him and his aboves, as specified. Hereditably and irrevocably, in all time coming, and in testimony thereof, his majesty for himself, and as Prince Steward of Scotland, with the advice and consent of his four saids, knowledge, proper motive, and kingly power, makes, erects, creates, unites, annexes, and incorporates the whole lands above mentioned in a hail of free barony, by all the rights, meaths, and marches thereof, old and divided, as the same lies in length and breadth in houses, biggings, mills, mulchers, hawking, bunting, fishing with court, plaint, hearzeld, fock, fork, sack, sock, thole, fame, burt, rake, wraith, rare, venison, outfang thief, infang thief, pit and gallows, and all in sundry other commodities. Given at our court of Whitehall, etc., etc., God save the king. Common Pisto, 5 Lib, 13-8, Registrate, 26 September, 1687. See, madam, 
Here are 10 signatures of privy councillors of that year, and here are other 10 of the present year, with His Grace the Duke of Queensbury at the head. All right. See, here it is, sir. All right. Done your work. So you see, madam, this gentleman is the true and sole heritor of all the land that your father possesses, with all the rents, therefore, for the last twenty years and upwards. Fine job for my employers. Sorry on your account, madam. Can't help it. I was again going to disclaim all interest or connection in the matter, but my friend stopped me, and the plaints and lamentations of the dame became so overpowering that they put an end to all further colloquy. But Lawyer Lincoln followed me, and stated his great outlie and the important services he had rendered, until I was obliged to describe an order to him for one hundred pound on my banker. I was now glad to retire with my friend and ask seriously for some explanation of all this. It was in the highest degree unsatisfactory. He confirmed all that had been stated to me, assuring me that I had not only been assiduous in my endeavors to seduce a young lady of great beauty, which it seemed I had affected, but that I had taken counsel and got this supposed old false and forged grant, raked up and now signed, to ruin the young lady's family quiet, so as to throw her entirely on myself for protection, and be wholly at my will. End of section 20